Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is the podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. That it is. It is. And although we have now entered Women's History Month, yes, uh, we did get started a week late on our Black History Month episodes, and we always like to give you four weeks of Black History here on Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Because how, why would you have it any other way, That's world? right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, And so this week we're covering a topic that I'm going to be honest with you, I really dragged my feet on doing the prep for this episode. Not as if I'm not aware of the story. I know this story, of course, well, pretty well. Uh, But because of that, I really knew what I was getting myself into. And didn't want to revisit it? Didn't want to revisit it. Honestly, that's how I feel as well. I actually kind of went into a very deep Emmett Till dive sometime during the pandemic. I can't remember when it was, but I listened to a podcast on it. Of course, I knew the story, but there was something about a telling of it that I heard where there were more details that I hadn't heard before, where especially about the woman who made the accusations Mm -hmm. and all of that, like all of that sent me down a rabbit hole of all of the different accounts, the varying accounts of what happened that day, the different things yeah. that people said, learning about the places where he was from, learning about the Delta, different things like that. And it was another thing for me that, you know, we had on the list. And like we said last week, you know, we wanted to ha- kind of have something that wasn't always so depressing when we're talking about Black History Month. We want to be celebratory. And this is very much the opposite of that. So it it is really hard to talk right. about. But I mean, in terms of black history, it's incredibly important. It and is. we'll get into why it's it's so important. But um, before we do, I just wanted to give my sources really quickly. So I got a lot of my information on a history.com article. Also, there was a Distractify um, article talking about what happened to Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam. Yeah. Uh, I also listened to a Crime of the Centuries episode on this. How amazing is that show, by the that, way? That show's really good. And I had, and it's a fairly recent episode. And I well, had it's a new actually, show. It's only been out for like a year. Yeah, it's, it's on its second season. Yeah. And I think this was the second episode of the second season. Yep. Um, and I had intentionally avoided listening to it. What I will say is, I do recommend it. Of course, you know, she, the the host of that show is a, a reporter, a journalist. Like she is very thorough in doing her research. It is always so well researched. And, and the music, I just got to cut it. I love her husband does all the music for it. And yeah. I, I, the whole way that podcast is set up, I feel like is like very pleasing. Oh, it's I've had to interject. And that her really voice quick. is great. And Amber Hunt is amazing. And also like, if you listen to this episode and she's very good about this, like she goes and finds um, a lot of newspaper clips and stuff from the day typically. And that's what she uses for a lot of her research. But also this particular episode, because there has been so much reported on this uh, and there have been a lot of like documentaries and interviews and things given about this case. She uses a ton of actual audio clips yes. of the people speaking about their experiences, which I always find very useful because when we do episodes like this, a lot of times 
the articles will be contradictory or there will be things that are misquoted right or, exactly yeah. so hearing them say it in their own words their own experience and what they've wis- what they witnessed themselves i think is very reassuring for me that i'm like getting a good getting source it right, yeah right. i wanted to interject i got most of my notes from a bunch of different pbs.org yes. articles Ugh. you can and then you scroll to the bottom and there's another article for you to click on and you scroll to the bottom and there's another article yeah. for you to click on and they so, had a great documentary as well yeah again i don't typically like to watch things and take notes so i like to read my articles um so i read probably like 10 to 12 pbs uh, articles and then went back to Wikipedia, of course, to make sure I didn't miss any details I needed to Google oh, yeah. about and all that fun stuff. So those yeah. are the majority of my notes, but also a um, New York Times article where it's discussing um, the woman who accused um, Emmett Till of his behaviors going back on her statements years later. So that was a New York Times article that I read as well. So with that, should we... Yeah. Should we start? Yeah. So I want to kind of start by saying why this is important. And, you know, other than it just being an absolutely like horrific thing to have happened to a child boy. Yeah. <laughs> a, a child. Um, it was also widely and has been widely regarded as the event that kickstarted the modern civil rights movement. It was a crime that was so horrific and an outcome that was so shocking that people were forced to turn and face the horrors of, yeah. of Jim Crow and the segregated South. Like, and much like we just discussed in the mini episode, mm-hmm. which for you all is going to be a few days ago, for us was a few minutes ago. Yeah. There is something different about witnessing the atrocities that are going right. on when you physically cannot deny them anymore. And that was something that Emmett's mother really, I don't, uh, the strength to yeah, be able yeah. to put that kind of pain on display for the sake of a, a whole community of people for the whole world it was so moving to me and wonderful. Yeah. I can't wait. I mean, I can wait to get to that, to that part because everything is horrible. Yeah. But um, I was telling Keegan, you know, the one thing that gets me through episodes like this is when there is, I have to find some sort of silver lining. And for me, that was his mother, Mamie. And right. all that she went on to yeah. do. So you know, I did a poem last year for a Black Arts Alliance show. I actually have the footage from it, so if I'm not too embarrassed by it, I might post it. Don't be embarrassed, um, please post it. We want to see it. I did a poem by Nikki Giovanni that details this story mm. and moving into the civil rights um era that followed. And that whole part, I, I think that it is it is Mamie, and it's also all of the people who supported her, the community that uplifted her. And the people that saw themselves in her. Right, yes. I think it's all of that that makes this story so powerful. It's also what makes it so devastating, right? It's like her grief being on display the way it was. Um, it was so raw and visceral and guttural that it like every... It's kind of like when when George Floyd was calling for his mother. Yeah. And all of the mothers and all felt of that, the mothers you know? reacted. Exactly. Yeah. It's the same. Oh, God. I just got full body chills. Ooh. OK. All right. So let's get started. Let's get started. Let's talk a little. Let's talk about Emmett. Let's do yes. it. Emmett was born in 1941 in Chicago, Illinois, to Mamie Carthen and Lewis Till. Mamie essentially raised Emmett on her own as Lewis left her and Emmett in 1942 and Mamie discovered that Lewis had been unfaithful. So there is a lot about Lewis that isn't known. And I think this is important because 
from what Mamie and Emmett and the family is aware of, Lewis just abandoned the family and went off to the military or wherever. He's just not here anymore. But they never understood why or had any reasoning. And that wouldn't come out until during or after Emmett's trial, I believe. It, it was after the trial. But I got a different um, perspective on that. So okay. he, Lewis Till, from my understanding, was pretty abusive he was he was um, incredibly abusive to Mamie yeah he it was not a actually, good situation yeah yeah he was not a good guy like no. he he when they had a um, dispute over his infidelity um, he ended up choking her to unconsciousness yeah and she retaliated by you know throwing hot water on him which did was effective in getting him to leave the house yeah and she secured a um, restraining order against him but he continued to violate his restraining order um, okay. to the point where a judge gave him the choice to either be incarcerated or, or go to the military. Go into the military. Okay, so I knew all that, but I didn't know that they knew all that. I, I believe that so they, they knew know that they went that he went to the military, but they just figured they don't know what happened to him after. Right. So they knew that he went into the military. They knew that he died while serving because the U.S. Army mailed his things back yeah. to her. So she got a package from the U.S. Army that had his things, including um, a signet ring with his initials on it. That will become that will be very important, important. later. Um, so she knew that he was in the army. That's like, yeah. The the ring type. I didn't even think about that with the ring. She, so she would have known. Yeah, she knew with he was in the that. army, yeah. but she didn't know how he died. Yes. Um, and we we're not going to tell why. you yet either. Yeah. We'll yes. tell you when when everyone else gets but to know. I do also want to say so just to give a little bit of context about Mamie. So Mamie yeah. was born in the Delta region of Mississippi. Right? Yeah, she was very much raised in a in the. Very, very racist South. <laughs> right. I mean, the Delta, which there is a movie that just lives in my memory called Down in the Delta that I watched with my black family when I was a kid. That yeah. I remember scenes from that movie where I was like, I don't think I should have been watching that when I was like five. Like what? What um, scenes? I'm curious. I think that there was like just just sex, I think, but okay. also violence. But um, but the Delta, meaning the Mississippi Delta, it carries the nickname the most southern place on Earth. And by southern, they mean, you know, it's a it's characteristic of the American South, yeah. which, as you can imagine, in 1921, when Mamie was born, extremely racist. And yeah. she was born only a couple years after the red summer of 1919, when there was a rash of white on black violence that left hundreds of innocent black Americans dead. And then the year that she was born was the same year that black wall street, which we've done an episode on yeah. burned to the ground. So just there's, a lot of racial tensions right right when Mamie is coming into the world luckily by the time she was two years old she and her family moved to Argo Illinois along with many other black families during the great migration of rural families from the south moving to the north to escape the violence that you were talking about as well as lack of opportunity and unequal treatment by the law Argo was actually nicknamed Little Mississippi because of the large amount of Mississippi migrants so there is like you know we have so many little towns all over Los Angeles like little Armenia and things like that and there is something really wonderful about having a place where you can go and still be surrounded by the people that you're that you're used to being around right. you know but in a newer hopefully safer environment for her and her family yeah absolutely I mean and that will come into play a little bit later on as well uh because I know that a lot of people when they hear this story sometimes like their first inclination is like why would you send your son back there yeah but that was such a common thing that people did 
over summers. It's it's still something. But that like, people why do. not? Like, that's something. I I mean, I think about the stories that you tell, where you would go and spend the exactly. summer with your family, and I would do the same. Like, I would go to Kansas and spend time with my family or things like that. And it is where your roots are. Exactly. So even if it's dangerous, and she tells him such like she did everything that she could as a mother to be able to prepare her child but you also can't tell your kid who is you know what was he like 11 to 13 I can't remember he was 14 he was 14 years old he wants to spend the summer with his cousin and his uncle like of course you want to be able to like facilitate that want in the best way that you can as a mother yeah you know so let's rewind just a little bit from that um so after the death of her estranged husband uh, Mamie relied a lot on her mother to help raise Emmett. So as a result of this, she would later say that she felt like her relationship with Emmett was almost more like a brother-sister relationship. She said, you know, we had fun together. We laughed together. At the age of six, Emmett would contract polio, and this disease would leave him with a stutter and a slight limp uh, for the rest of his short life. Despite Emmett's persistent stutter, though, he was really popular with the other kids in the neighborhood. They described him as being like really funny. Yeah. Like had a lot of charm, a lot of humor. He was just this like lovable class clown is how I saw him. Class clown, everybody's pal kind of guy from everyone that, you know, classmates that have been interviewed and things like that. Everybody was just like a fan of Emmett. He's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he never took anything very seriously. And I think that that was something that That got him into trouble. That they recognized could get him into trouble. But also, he was so good natured that. Everyone always doing, knew it wasn't malicious. Right. He wasn't doing anything to like hurt anybody or to be a bully. Yeah. I mean, and despite the fact that he was very playful, he was also said to be pretty responsible. As he entered his preteens, he would clean the house while his mother was at work yeah. and have dinner going for her by the time she got home. He would say, mommy, like I have the quote somewhere, but it's like, mom, you go out and make the money. I got this. Yeah. Like, essentially, yes. that's how he was. I mean, and he would often volunteer to take buses all over town, pay bills for his mom like she would put them all in envelopes and tell him where to go and he would drop the bills off so this was yes he was silly and playful and funny and and got himself into trouble his nickname was Bobo yes but he he was also he a person a son who loved his mother and was very responsible and wanted to take care of her and you know what I see I see a single mother child relationship in that a lot you know I had two parents growing up but my mom essentially raised me and we do have a very different relationship than I think a lot of other mother daughters will have because of that and I think that there's also something about feeling like you're the other adult in the house again I did technically have another adult in the house but I acted like more of an adult you do have this sense of responsibility from a really young age where you feel like you have to be in the know about things that are going on in the house and chores and finances where you maybe wouldn't if you had two parents parents who were discussing that with right. each other and you're it, just so you have more awareness it also sounds like Mamie treated him like he was capable of that you know yes. whenever she says that they had a you know kind of a sibling relationship that they like helped each other grow I think a lot of people can hear that and think like oh well you shouldn't be friends with your kid or whatever but I think that because of that she saw him as a human as an a equal real person in yeah. a lot of ways like yes she's his mother and she tried to make sure that he would go out into the world in a safe way. And she tried to prepare him to go out into the world. But also, I think he felt like she knew that he was a capable 
person. Yeah. Know? And that is such, I mean, if, there, if there's any advice for me, for anyone who is taking care of children, that is one of the most important things to make them feel like they can take care of themselves. Like that's all you have to do is encourage them. Right. Do Even it. if they fail, do it yourself. Yeah. Keep going because yeah. that's going to give the kid the confidence to go forward in the world. Yeah. You know? Do what you need to do to make sure that they stay safe. Um, to the best of your ability because they are kids, right? And like kids make silly mistakes and they they do dumb stuff, right? With with age being in mind, right? let let your kids do things for themselves and make their own mistakes because it's going to give them more confidence in the future. So in 1954, things seemed to be kind of like looking up for this small family. So Mamie at this time had had two failed marriages. Was she Um, with Pink Bradley at this point? I can't remember. So she moved to Detroit, was with Pink Bradley. That didn't work out. That that marriage lasted only like Like a a year year or something. And so she'd moved back to Chicago. And in 1954, she met and eventually married a man named Gene Mobley, who Emmett liked as well. Like this was the first time that uh, Mamie was with someone who like treated her really nicely and right. loved her son. And it became kind of like a, a family environment or what could be seen one day as a family yes. you know, of three. Yeah. And one of the saddest things about this you know that I learned whenever doing the prep for this episode I think it was in the crimes of the centuries podcast episode actually where they said that their first Christmas together where Gene was there he gave Emmett the um like vest and pants of a suit and his mom gave him the suit jacket and so that picture that very famous picture that you see of Emmett Till wearing a suit that's the suit that he got that Christmas oh my gosh the fact that like the two people went in to create right. a whole suit together. That's so precious. Right, because, and it should also be said, and I didn't, I, I have like so many pages of notes on this, so I didn't get into detail yeah. about every little thing, but it should also be said that while Chicago was not racist the way the South was racist, it still wasn't equal, right? Like they were making um, strides toward progress. There had been a lot of things, especially like in the recent past, uh, to try and make things more equal. However, it was still very difficult for black families. Um, There was a lot of redlining happening at this time in Chicago. And so, yeah, being able to afford something like a nice suit, it was like they both went in on it together to yeah. get him like one nice suit. I love that. So, uh, yeah. In the summer of 1955, Emmett learned that one of his cousins, Wheeler Parker, was traveling to Mississippi to visit some other family and Emmett wanted to go too. Well, right. And wasn't um, Uncle Moe's visiting Chicago as well? So he, I think he had made visits so they'd met each other. Yeah, because um, what I read is that like Moe's would tell him stories of living in the Delta and yes. things like that. Oh, he yeah. really liked his yeah. Uncle Moe's. He really liked his cousin and he was going to be spending the, the summer there. So he was like, I want to know what this is all about. I've heard so many stories. Yeah. I want to be a part of it. So I also want to say really quickly, and I could be wrong, but I think his name was Moses. It says Moe's on some of the articles I read. Yeah. But on the paperwork that he signed. It's Moses. During the trial, he said it was Moses or he, he signed it Moses. And I think he had a son named Moe's. So I think at some point it got mixed up. Let's but, call him Moses from here on out then just to not have any confusion. 
Okay. I mean, it could go either way. I'm just saying what I read. <laughs> well, I mean, good, good to clarify. Good to clarify. Yeah. So um, also, Mos- Moses was a preacher. Yes. Um, and they called him preacher. <laughs> and he was also a sharecropper. And yeah, really, you know, had a liking to young Emmett. I mean, that honestly sounds like so much fun, especially like three guys spending the summer together. Right. It's a little bit of freedom. Yeah. Which was like a a very big deal. It's like a 14 year old boy. mm -hmm. You're 14 getting on a train and, you know, doing that, that, that trip from Chicago to Mississippi That's with like your a cousin. Big grown up thing to do. Yeah. It big would thing. Be, it would be so fun. Well, and Mamie was very concerned. At first she wasn't like, Yeah, just go on down there. Not a big deal. Not Have at all. fun. Yeah. She, you know, sat him down, explained to him the differences between living in the north and living in the south, how he should be you know, how he should behave, um, you know, what kind of, you know, language to be using, how to act around people and things like that. And Emmett had assured his mother that he understood where she was coming right. from. Right. I mean, and he wasn't the only one that was worried. So Wheeler Parker's parents were also hesitant to send their son with Emmett because they knew Emmett to be like a, a prankster, jokester. a jokester. Um, and they were concerned because they thought that this kind of like carefree attitude would cause trouble for him and for both of the boys if they were together in in the deep south you know and Mamie like you said she really said in no uncertain terms listen if you need to try and stay out of white people's way if you can't stay out of their way you defer to them right exactly like do not do not if they start a fight with you you walk away from that fight like you don't engage ever and you know they had good reason for this because Brown versus the Board of Education, which was the Supreme Court decision to end segregation in public schools, had just happened the year before. And Mississippi officials in particular were especially hostile to the change. They were trying desperately to pass laws to protect segregation. Oh, yeah. They full on just shut up their public schools because the part of that was that all public schools had to be integrated. So they just straight up got rid of all their public schools. Yeah. Yes. And at the time as well, Mississippi, although... Okay, so, you know, there was that red summer where in 1919 where lynchings were at like an all time high and they remained high, but they had declined some by the 1950s. Still, Mississippi led the nation in lynchings. And in that same summer in 1955, a week before Emmett arrived in Mississippi, a black activist named Lamar Smith was shot and killed in front of the county courthouse in Brookhaven for a political organization. And the three suspects who were arrested for his murder were released. Yeah. So, so and this was well known. And I believe Mamie was aware of the situation as well, which made her even more nervous. And just to give a little bit more history on the violence in Mississippi. So first of all, statistics on lynchings weren't even recorded until 1882. Since that time, more than 500 black Americans have been killed by extrajudicial violence in Mississippi alone. And more than 500 black Americans have been killed by extrajudicial violence in Mississippi alone and more than 3000 across the South. And again, those are what's documented, exactly. which means you know it has to be much, much, much higher. Even looking at this case, um, there was a lot of effort done to try and sweep this under the rug. They yeah. simply couldn't because of how horrific it was. So 
Absolutely. Between, you know, 18 whatever to 1955, there were certainly far more than 500 Definitely. lynchings Which in is the state. Why you didn't hear this because I'm going to cut it out. But I was like, wait, 500. Was that right? Because that doesn't even seem like it would be enough. For- right. I mean, and like we talked about in the mini now, the federal law, um, the anti-lynching law includes bodily injury, which would not have been the case then. So they are only yep. classifying lynching as, as deaths. Um, deaths. Yeah. yeah. Right. I also wanted to mention, because it's very important that in the South at this time, white people publicly prohibited interracial relationships as a means to maintain white supremacy. Even the suggestion of sexual contact between the races was means for penalties for the black man involved. These biases were even more enforced once Jim Crow laws became evident across the South. So this was another thing, like Mimi was suggesting, if a white person confronts you, do not engage, walk away, because it really was, it wasn't just like a passive, it it wasn't passive racism. It was very, very active racism. Right. Yeah, I mean, and this kind of thing, every time I hear about this, right, 1955, this was not that long ago. I mean, my mom was four. Yeah. My grandparents got married in like 1960, 1960. So wild. Yeah. So it it is not that long ago. And so when people try to look at this as though it's ancient history or it can't understand the enduring trauma that comes from this situation, this is not long ago. You know what I mean? Like that's to show like it's not just because it was like of the time that everyone. Well, my grandparents were both born in Louisiana in the 1930s. So they were in their 20s. Yeah. Whenever this happened. So that should give you kind of an idea. And it should put into context why, like I've said it many times on the I use it as an example all the time on this podcast. But my grandma had five sons and it puts into context why she was so hard on them and like why she worked so hard to make sure that they always looked a certain way and always behaved a certain way in public because she was terrified that one tiny little thing could get her sons killed. Like, you know, my, my uncle's, Many of, I mean, at least two or three of my uncles were alive, like when this happened. Yeah. So it's, it's not, it was a real fear for people not that long ago. My, my dad was born in 1962. So it's not like, um, it was ancient history. And so when people like to frame it as though we have no right or the black community has no right to still be be mad, be scared or be mad or, or any of that stuff. It's like, no, these were our parents. These were our grandparents. This is the reality that they, they lived through and lived in. And also the reality that you probably lived with as well as the result of what's happened through history. Right. You know, like that's, that's the other part of it. It's just like, just because I didn't live in the segregated South doesn't mean that that trauma of having lived through that didn't stay with my grandma and didn't rub off on all of us kids and grandkids. Because she, because the world isn't going to just switch in her head. She kept bars on her windows. Yes. She still wants to protect you, her grandchild from anything bad happening because you don't, because even today, the violence against black people is astronomical. Right. So she has a right to be worried and a right to be, 
anxious and to hold on to that trauma because really nothing has changed if you right, look at it. Right. And people want to cry, you know, reverse racism when when you say you were cautious around white people. It's like, well, this is why a lot of black people feel like they need to be cautious around white people. It's why a lot of black people don't trust police. My grandparents never trusted police. We kept the bars on the windows at their house. We kept the, you know, they always kept a big iron door in front of their front door that was locked at all times, even if the front door was open. Yep. So uh, this is why, you know, and it just, it gives it a little bit of context. It's easy to forget how, um, that wasn't very long ago. Yeah. That's all. No, but that's, it's a really important thing to remember. So Emmett got to the, so the town that they're in is called money. Which is funny because I call my dog that. Money, Mississippi. (laughs) Money, Mississippi. Emmett got some money on August 21st, 1955. On the 24th, Emmett and his cousin Curtis decided to ditch church, which is something that I did a lot as a kid or at least would try to do. Your your grandpa wasn't the preacher. Well, uncle, but yeah, yeah. My, <laughs> yeah. They, I think they it was, dipped out. It was Curtis's grandpa. Oh, it was his cousin. I get it. I yeah. get it, get it. Okay, yeah. So they were like, let's like sneak out on grandpa. Like, mm-hmm. We're going to get out of here. Go get some candy. We're going to go meet up with the other local boys and we're going to buy some candy. Again, such a like young kid thing to do. You know, like My God, such a yeah. like, preteen adolescent kind of thing to do it was like me and my friends getting on our bikes and going to Dairy Queen like that was like what we did all the time and also it should be said again this is only three days after he's arrived yeah this is like still very very new and I also think it's important to mention that this town was mostly full of sharecroppers and Mm -hmm. sharecroppers children and a lot of those children also worked in the fields so it was a very different life than Emmett was used to um and so these kids that he was hanging out with in money were all sharecropper children and he met up with them and they decided to go to Brian's grocery store and yeah. Brian's was owned by Carolyn and Roy Bryant. Carolyn was the daughter of a plantation manager and was born and raised in Mississippi. She was a high school dropout and beauty contest winner <laughs> who married Roy, an ex-soldier, and they're cool. both pieces of shit yeah yeah and it should be said that Bryant's grocery and meat market which was owned by the Bryant's, I was there's no way I was writing out that I just wrote the grocery store yeah. or just Bryant's I mean, I'm like that's gen that, that is what it is it's just like a convenience store that sells like and a deli right fun fact there was a Haggerty's deli in St. Paul Minnesota any relation uh yeah it was my uh I think it was like one of my grandpa's like brothers or something like that I know my grandpa worked at it in one at one point but where I got my very first tattoo was directly across the street from where Haggerty's was Mm. that was kind of cool fun fact um but even though the Bryants were white, most of their customers were black, like you said. They were living in money, which was, right. you know, very, very filled with sharecropper and sharecropper's children. So the mo- the majority of their customers were sharecroppers mm-hmm. and their children. Yeah. Yeah. And what happened inside the store is still unclear. But initial reports said that Emmett was dared to flirt with Caroline or Carolyn. But this was disputed by Emmett's cousin, uh, Simeon, who was there that day. Yeah. And though Curtis Jones had made a statement saying this is what happened at the time, he later recanted that statement in 2006. So, right. 
it's pretty much it's really it really happen. mucky uh, the other thing there was a story that Emmett took a photo out of one of his like white classmates that he said was his girlfriend back home right. to kind of like impress his friends and because of that they were like oh well if you're so great with white women like go hit on this Carolyn. right so that that's what Curtis said yeah so that initially. was like one story that mm-hmm. a lot that I think a lot of people yes. to this day still think is what happened yes that yeah. he went in and and was just being like, his playful self hey baby what's going on yeah. you know what I mean like yes. talking it up when he was not doing that right it's generally um believed now that and this is what Simeon his cousin said Simeon says that Emmett went into the store alone and then he Simeon was feeling like you know we know this kid maybe I should go in with him like make sure that he doesn't do anything that could get us in trouble so he followed his cousin in a few minutes later there was a witness in the grocery store at the time she's an older black woman and she said and you can hear her voice on the crime of the centuries episode she said that Emmett bought a 10 cent piece of bubble gum. Yeah. And when he went to pay, he put the money directly into Carolyn's palm, which caused oh. her to jerk her hand back. So I guess, I, I mean, this makes sense. It would have been customary for him to put it on the table, on the table and slide it and for over to her, her then to take the money. Right. And, but he's from a different world, right? So he put the money directly into her hands. So and the this skin caused skin her contact. She freaked out because she's mm-hmm. a piece of shit. Right. But then, you know, he didn't think anything of it. They went outside and then Carolyn left the store a few minutes later and walked to her car across the street. As she did so, according to Simeon, Emmett let out a whistle. Now, it's disputed whether or not he was whistling at Caroline. Emmett said um, because Emmett was sometimes said to have to whistle to alleviate his stutter. That and that's the thing is that when when there was talk about whether or not he was flirting, was he flirting or was he stuttering? You know, there there's a lot of things because of the fact that Emmett walked with a limp and had a stutter where they were saying, well, maybe she Which took is it to mean a different stupid. thing. It is very very. It's stupid. also stupid anyway. Even if he had whistled at her. It is such a dumb reason. It is, but for at what this followed. time, even the suggestion of sexual contact between yes. a white and a black person would be like means for death. So why, while to us it sounds absolutely ridiculous yes. that that would happen, right? The fact that she would even have a reaction like that, if that's what happened—that skin-to-skin contact—just goes to show you right there, right? That a whistle would be a big deal right right and they knew it so regardless of his intention because they you know Simeon mm-hmm. actually believes that he was he did whistle at her just as a joke you know mm-hmm. not really realizing that it was something to be worried about but immediately he realized it was something to be worried about because the other boys were petrified they were like we got to get out of here we got to get out of right. here and they fled the scene and to the so- point where they they got into a car sped off as they were speeding off they saw another car behind them that they were worried was tailing them yeah so they pulled over got out of the car and ran that's how scared they were yeah so Emmett knew immediately that he was in trouble potentially like like this actually was a really really big deal to the point where he was like you know please don't tell Moses yeah that this happened yeah we got to keep this between us I don't want to get sent home I'm having a good time I've been here for three days Um, I also want to explain that so in the back of the grocery store was Carolyn's sister-in-law with their children and they would kind of like watch the kids back there while one person 
person was out working the store and they had decided originally that they weren't going to share with their husbands what had happened. The other man that would be involved is J.W. Millam and he was the husband of um, Juanita, the other woman that was in the back of the store. Right. And was um, Bryant's brother, half brother, half brother, yeah. half brother which right. is why they have different last names. Yeah. And yeah. they're but they're all like you know, in-laws and extended family and things like that. Right. But when Roy and JW returned home, one of the kids at the scene had told them what happened. At least that's what I read in one of the accounts. Do you have anything different for how they found out? I I don't know. And I think that it's been kind of disputed because no one actually knows for sure. We only have what Carolyn has said later on, which of course she has every reason to lie. She's lied so many times. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I, I feel like I remember also hearing that like, she did tell him and then they brought her into the car and then right. she had to so, identify. And that we can get to later because again, that's very murky. However, if you believe the people at the scene um, or at least one of the people at the scene, they say that Carolyn was with them that night. Yes. Um, there was a woman in the car, they say. Right. And that would make the most right. sense so as to who it would be. Maybe it wasn't Carolyn. Maybe it was the other woman, but it kind of, de- or Juanita. But, but Juanita wouldn't sense. have seen who the person was. She was in the back. It only makes sense for it to be Carolyn that was in the car. But alas, once Roy and JW heard what had happened, they decided that Emmett crossed a line and needed to be taught a lesson. And it should be said that this was three days later. The boys yeah. had started to feel kind of safe. Like yeah, nothing, like maybe this past right, was going to happen here. Um, and I don't think it can be overemphasized that three days. So it's not as if this was one thing that happened in the moment, a hot-headed kind of situation, which when we talked about the Emmett Till anti-lynching law, that's part of the requirement was that it has to be this like conspiracy, yeah. right? And sure enough, they were heard around town, like asking people if they knew who had done this. And again, we don't know what care, not that anything would justify what follows. No, we, we just want to know, know <laughs> what Caroline or Carolina, keep doing that. What it doesn't Carolyn, fucking matter what her name is. I don't care. Call her whatever you want. <laughs> what this woman, uh, we what, don't know. Let's just call her this bitch. What this bitch said. <laughs> like <laughs> We don't know what she said to them or when she relayed the information. Yeah. But again, it it they were heard at least for the day before um, kind of asking about who this was and where Which he could be found. Which is crazy that you would, like I get whistled at and catcalled. I'm not thinking about it three days later. Like it is kind of crazy that this would be such a big deal well, that it, even three days later it would be in the forefront of your mind. It goes to show you the level of like hatred and yeah. bigotry that like they truly didn't see this as a human being, right? Like listen, None of us like being catcalled. It's not fun. It is like it can make you feel like unsafe as a woman. We've talked about this many times. But I would also never go home to Max and say, go find this guy and kill him for me, would you? Yeah, it's it's absolutely appalling. So. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's get into... Do we have to? We we do, we do. So Okay. On the night of August 29th, I mean, again, he's been in Money, Mississippi for just a little over a week at this yeah. point. Not very I mean, long. Actually, this is 2.30 in the morning on August 29th. Right. So like middle of the night, everyone is asleep. the 28th, basically. Yeah. Uh, so on this evening, Moses Wright uh, describes the moment and you can hear this man's voice again. Like, I just feel like it hits you differently when you hear them talk about it. But yeah. he describes the moment Roy Bryant and uh, J.W. Millam came to his door. They said they wanted to speak to the boy and they carried a uh, pistol in one hand and a flashlight in the other. He tried to get them to leave, fearing for his own sons that were sleeping in the house, but they refused and they pushed their way in. Simeon, his cousin, uh, Emmett's cousin, recalled waking up in the middle of the night to the sound of the voices and said that in that moment he thought he was going to die that they had come to kill him, but instead they passed right by him and made their way to Emmett's room. At gunpoint, they forced Emmett to get out of bed and get dressed. Those in the house pleaded with the men to leave and even offered them money, but it didn't work. As they hauled Emmett away, they turned to Moses and they asked him his age. When he replied 64, Millam reportedly told him that if he told anyone what had happened, he wouldn't live to see 65. <sighs> so terrified. Yeah. Uh, when they took Emmett to the car, reportedly, and this is again from people who were there, yeah. they asked a woman who was sitting in the car if they had the right boy, yep. and they heard her reply, yes. yes. So that is something that will be disputed later on, but I tend to believe... I tend to believe people who were there. Yeah. It's been a lot of different sources have said that there was a woman in the car. A lot of different sources said that they did hear a woman's voice as well. And like we said, by process of elimination, I can only assume that would be. I mean, who else would they ask? Right. Yeah. Yeah, Like, yeah, it just that's what would make sense. And um, despite the threat that they'd made, Moses did go and report the kidnapping to police and they paid a visit to Bryant and Millam the next day. And while they admitted to taking Emmett, they said that Carolyn wasn't with them, that they took Emmett back to their house and wanted to like scare him. Yeah. And that Carolyn had then said, nope, that's not the boy who who did that. So they left him on the side of the road and they just figured he'd made his way home. Oh, my gosh. He didn't make it home. That's you know, the kind yeah. of kind of act that they were exactly. putting on. And it is also very disputed what has happened once they picked Emmett up. We only really know the results of what happened. We can't know for sure what actually fully went down. Um, what we do know is that it was a few days later yeah. and they found his body in the Tallahatchie River. It was swollen, badly beaten, completely unrecognizable, and the only way to identify this child was by the signet ring on his finger that belonged to his father that his mother had given him to wear before his trip. Right. So part of the reason, and we'll get into more details later, although it is horrible, um, just trigger warning now. I mean, but uh, 
he had been tied down to a cotton blower that weighed over 100 pounds in an effort to sink the body in the river. And then he had spent, like we said, several days in the river. Yeah, so, so your body has certain reactions to being underwater for a certain amount of time, which made it right. very difficult for yeah. his face to be recognized. Yeah. And he was only found because his feet floated to the top. So yeah. there was a boy who was fishing in the Tallahatchie <sighs> River who saw his feet floating and that's how his mm. body was found. So oh boy, I know that boy didn't get there. No, it's no, I bet he didn't. Oh. I bet he didn't. Um so while the sheriff in money seemed to understand the gravity of the situation, even to have some sympathy for the situation, the sheriff in the town over, and this is part of the issue, was that there was the sheriff in money and then there was the, the sheriff in the town where Emmett's body was actually found. Right. And that is Sheriff Strider. Yes. Fuck who you. is, wow, what a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, he, he kind of said, and you can hear him again, like he uses all kinds of racial slurs. So just know that. But like, he, in the same statement, is kind of saying that he didn't think this body was Emmett's. Yes. Uh, but then also saying that if it was, he probably deserved it because he was an uppity black kid from the North. Like, yeah. that's not exactly the wording he used. But in, in so gist. many wor- words, yeah, that's what it means. And I, I want to say that the fact that he doesn't even think the body was Emmett's, he carries that forever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that becomes a really big conspiracy and a big... Uh, way for the defense to try to gain their client's freedom right I mean like because he testifies it yeah he he testifies it he testifies to this later that the body was not Emmett that the whole story had been concocted by the NAACP a a white child like it just complete right and utter nonsense he he basically said that this was an NAACP conspiracy to make Mississippi look bad and that Emmett was alive and well living with family members in Detroit like that is that is what he said. But despite having said that, he still tried to get the body secretly buried because he knew that if anyone saw what it looked like, how disfigured this body was, that it would make everyone look horrible. So, yeah. And luckily, mm-hmm. Mamie in Chicago was able to figure this out somehow and find out that they were going to try to do this very speedy burial. And she was like, over my dead body. Yeah. Oh, So yeah. Emmett's body was then transported back to Chicago to be with his family. Hearing her talk about it, too, is like... She's like, I don't know what made him think he had the authority to bury my son. Yes. Like, absolutely not, you know? Yes. But when she finally saw the body, and I'm going to give these details, uh, but I was really on the fence about whether or not I wanted to give these details, but I'm I'm going to, so just trigger warning about about it. But Can I just um, say really quick, and I don't think I necessarily have the final say in this, but for me... Seeing and knowing the details seems like that was Mamie's point. Right. So I feel like for me, knowing and learning those details and sharing them is almost like I feel like part of carrying on what she meant for all of us to be aware of. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So as much as it pains us to talk about it and we don't need to. Absolutely. And I normally. Re-traumatize people with these things. Yes. I normally move away from um, being graphic about these kinds of things, but it was, in fact, the graphic nature of his death that caused the kind of change that it caused. That, right. that was the catalyst that it was. We can't sugarcoat that. Yes. So um, she, of course, was absolutely a 
appalled when she saw her son's body. Not only was he bloated and everything else that happens from a body having been um, submerged in water for that length of time, but he had also been beaten so badly that all but two of his teeth had been knocked out. One eye had been knocked out of his socket and was actually resting on his cheek. Mm. Um, his tongue had bulged from his mouth where because he had been strangled. And he had a gunshot wound through the head. So it was horrific. You can find the images even on the Wikipedia page. We'll talk about why those images are readily available now. Um, But you can see for yourself how horrifying this was. I cannot imagine if that was my son. Yeah. And what Mamie said, there was just no way I could describe what was in that box. No way. And I wanted the world to see. Right. Everyone expected her to have a closed casket funeral because of the damage that had been done to Emmett's body and face. Uh, But as a grief stricken mother, and I, I actually do feel like I would feel similarly. There's so much anger and it's not just the anger of your child having been treated that way. It's the anger of generations of mistreatment. An anger of how dare you tell me to push this aside and go ahead and bury my son and not have you see what happened to him because it's important that you see what happened to him. Right. You know? Yeah, you should have to face what you've done. And exactly. I think, I think she By also just burying knew- and not having an open casket is... Is it's keeping the people that did this to him safe because they were not seeing what's happening. Right. And I and I think she knew, and unfortunately, you know, we'll get to that, but she was correct in in knowing this that this might be the only retribution she's likely to get. Yeah. This might be the only way that she will get any justice for her son because she knows that the system isn't, especially in money, Mississippi, the the system the system isn't designed to protect people like her yeah and if she can at least get the media to show what's happening and get her story out there at least it can change the minds of people which eventually it did and at this point by the time Emmett's body was transported back to Chicago the story had become like national news so there already was attention on this story so it wasn't like the open casket was the thing that brought it to attention everybody was already kind of anticipating this horrific funeral right. to happen, you know, and everybody was very much aware of the situation um, at a very surface level of what they read in the newspapers and things like that. But there was a lot of national curiosity right, with right. this case. And it should be said as well, like lynching happened, lynchings happened all the time, like we said. So why was this one, why did this one get so much attention, right. right? And I think that it needs to be stated that for the general public, this was such an outrageous overreaction to a 14-year-old whistling at a woman, yeah. right? That it blew the minds of a lot of people. So I, I want to point that out because while, yes, in Mississippi, like obviously by the reaction of his cousins, this was a duh, no-brainer, don't do this thing. Yeah. For people who didn't live in the South, this seemed absolutely ludicrous that yeah. this could be the result of something so seemingly benign. You know, so that's kind of where, even though Emmett had been told, he'd been raised in a completely different world from Mississippi. And 
To him, I'm sure, is an impulsive 14-year-old boy. He didn't think it could possibly be this bad. And neither did most of the country. And that's why they responded that way. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Tens of thousands of people lined the street outside the mortuary to view Emmett's body. And days later, thousands more attended his funeral. And it was during the viewing where... Emmett's mother and the body were photographed and notably appeared in black publications like Jet and the Chicago Defender. Later, Time selected the Jet photo of Mamie over her son's body as one of the 100 most influential images of all time. Under the photograph, it read, For almost a century, African Americans were lynched with regularity and impunity. Now, thanks to a mother's determination to expose the barbarousness of this crime, the public could no longer pretend to ignore what they couldn't see. Yeah, so as you can imagine, whites in the South are scrambling at this point, especially in Mississippi. The story um, then, you know, they were trying to get control of this narrative. And so they started shifting what had happened and they started reporting it differently. Suddenly, Emmett not only whistled at Carolyn Bryant, he'd insulted her, he'd grabbed her, he'd harassed her. Yeah. Carolyn Bryant would go on to testify that he had grabbed her wrist, cornered her in the store and spewed vulgarities at her. Yeah, I actually read Carolyn's testimony because it, it reads is, false. It, even just reading it, you're like, this isn't. Have you talked to a 14 year old even in 1955? Like, yeah, it's it's interesting. And I, I want to talk a little bit about Carolyn's testimony as we're kind of getting into the trial and everything, um, because it's incredibly uh unfair what happens so originally carolyn was to be questioned in front of the jury but once the defense asked carolyn what happened on the night of august 24th the prosecution objected and judge swango dismissed the jury so she did her whole entire testimony with no jury present just the judge when asked if she was alone in the store the night of the 24th so she essentially says that this slur came into the store and was looking at candy. And so she nicely came up to him and was like, you oh, know, so like, nicely, so nice, so what politely. Can I, what can I get for you out of this? Like candy she case? ever would. Like she, like, first of all, come on. Like she's going to like, oh, I needed to help this customer. Let me hurry over to ask if this young boy needs anything. Right. Yeah. She, she never would do that for a black customer. There's no way. Yes. She says she got the merchandise he wanted for him and held out her hand for the money. Instead of giving her the money, he grabbed her hand with a strong, Wrong grip. He then said to her, how about a date, baby? She shook him loose with some difficulty and went to the back of the store. She then says he caught her to the cash register by putting his left hand on my waist and he put his other hand on the other side. This time he said to her, what's the matter, baby? Can't you take it? Then again, she freed herself from the man and he said, you needn't be afraid of me. And that he had been with white women before. You needn't be afraid of me. I've been with white women before. In what universe is a 14-year-old black boy talking to a white woman in the 50s this way? Even coming from Chicago. What 14-year-old boy is saying, can't you take it, baby? What? That's an adult. That is an adult's verbiage and you know there was someone who was interviewed and i can't remember who it was i think it's a curator for the emmett till museum um who was giving his opinion on on this and emmett's reaction when the boys who he's with his cousins respond to him whistling 
is scared. Yes. Right? Like he is his he's reaction not, is scared. He doesn't have a bravado on him. Right. He's scared. He's reportedly scared when they come to get him at the house. Like he is not the kind of personality that he doesn't feel he would never feel brave enough to do something like that. Like that is kind of the thing that um, a lot of people report. And yes, I know we all have blinders on when it comes to our, our relatives, but it really seems very unlikely that this is how this went down. And in fact, we know it's not how it went down. Yeah. Um, and, but to me, even just the way that she's quoting him. Yes. It, it's very, it doesn't, it, it feels very mature. Very for, mature. For a 14 year old to be talking about stutter. sex and everything like that. Right. With, with a stutter. Like this is yeah. a 14 year old too. You know, other people would also go on later to say that he would even have a hard time getting the, those kinds of words out yeah and we also know it didn't occur because there was that old woman in the store who was a witness and then his cousin who went in right after him and then also said you know he was in there everybody who was there that day said he was in the store for maybe five minutes yeah there simply wasn't enough time for all of this to have happened no and there would have been there's no way that carolyn would have been that calm during that whole situation either um, it's just obviously very, very untrue. But I wanted to get back because I just got to this point in my notes. So I wanted to go back to how you were talking about how everyone in Mississippi was kind of like scrambling on how to figure everything out. Well, Roy, Carolyn and JW kind of became like mini celebrities in that area. Reporters often commented on Roy oh, yeah. and Carolyn's handsome looks mm-hmm. and JW's tall stature and big cigars. Yeah, I mean, even to this day, you see this kind of like two sided reporting. You saw it then too, whereas they, they would- compared her to Marilyn Monroe. Yes. And they would refer to Emmett Till as just the black boy or the black lad, but they would talk in detail about her beauty, her beauty and his good looks. And they would talk about, oh, their sons are so happy to see them in the courtroom and, yep. and, and you know, so happy to hug daddy's knee in the courtroom and things Gross. like that, trying to make them seem more sympathetic. Ugly from within, everybody. Ugly from within. And also, she's no Marilyn Monroe. She... <laughs> She wishes she could be Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. Just going to say that. So five weeks after Emmett's murder, an all-white, all-male jury acquitted Bryant and Millam after an hour of deliberation, despite witness testimony that the men had been seen the night of the kidnapping with two others taking Emmett into a barn. And it should also be said that there were two black people who testified. There were supposed to be four yeah. who testified. Two of them, the day that they were supposed to be testified, were arrested by the sheriff and put in jail and released after the trial. Yes. So um, deliberately prevented from testifying. In November of 1955, oh, and it should also be said that after that, there are famous photos of the four of them laughing in court, You um, meaning the four of them, meaning the defendants, um, the defendants right. and their wives. And um, they've been interviewed in the courtroom and even Carolyn, like Carolyn, who wanted all of this sympathy later in life, I feel like. Yeah. She's interviewed in the courtroom that day. Not an ounce of remorse. No, not an happy ounce as a of, clam. of regret. And says she's very, very happy with, yeah. with the outcome of the trial. Yeah. Um, so it should be said, absolute pieces of shit. In November of 1955, a grand jury declined to indict Bryant and Millam for kidnapping, despite their own admissions to having taken Till. Yeah. Like, yeah. They they said it. They admitted to it. They're like, yes, this is a thing we did. And yep. the grand jury was like, mm, 
it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. And it's awful. Allegedly, one juror said, if we hadn't stopped to drink a pop, it wouldn't have even taken that long. It took them 67 minutes to deliberate. They were never. Kidnapping. Yeah, they, they were, were never, never going, going to. Everyone yeah. knew that they were guilty. They just didn't care. Well, or they you know, thought he deserved it. That's well, you really know what what's it was. even more fucked up is that as recently as 2005, two of the living jurors still believed in the defense's case. They also said that the prosecution hadn't proved Emmett's death, nor that it was actually his body removed from the wi- from the river. Which it and doesn't this is in even 2005. Which that's willful ignorance because two months after the jury's verdict, the men sold their story to Look Magazine for four thousand dollars. Yes, they not only admitted to the murder in the publication, they went into graphic detail graphic detail they were absolutely racial horrible. slurs the entire fucking time and i okay i read in one source that mamie was actually able to watch the interview with roy because allegedly she was going to be able to talk to him if she wanted to and decided not to i didn't add that in my notes because it was just something that i read and didn't read it anywhere else but if that was the case can you imagine it's it's horrifying. After reading what the oh, and again they've profited on this. Yeah. They admitted to the murder. They were not able well, to be double tried jeopardy. Again. You can't be mm-hmm. tried again. So they right. really there was nothing keeping them from telling their story, and they were proud of it. Like yes. they were really proud of what they'd done, and they felt now free enough to be able to share it with the world because they weren't going to get penalized. So for it. what they basically said, and I'm not going to go into detail. If you want to read. What they said in that interview, fucking trigger warning. Like, I'm not sure that I'm glad to have read it. Uh, But they basically say that they wanted to just teach him a lesson. They wanted to scare him, like beat him up a little bit, and they were going to send him home. But he got mouthy. He mouthed off at them. He resisted. And he said, you know, things like, I'm as good as you are. And I've been with with white women before. No, he didn't. There's no way... Like, I just, I don't, it, I don't believe it. Like, this is a kid who was obviously scared. Like, he yeah. was obviously scared of the potential outcome. Um, I don't know where that sudden surge of bravery would come from for no. him to... Especially, a, like we just said, a boy with a stutter that really struggled to get words out. You're kidnapped. You're taken to a stranger's home. There's no way this kid is getting mouthy yeah. to a barn and, yeah. and talking to these adults that way. There's no way even a jokester even a silly kid that's not how somebody behaves when they're frightened for their lives right yes yeah um so kind of a bummer situation that both men died of cancer one in 19 well not not a bummer that they died i was gonna say i feel nothing no i'm not i'm not (laughs) no i know you're not saying that i'm just saying i'm sad they died without any real repercussions exactly. like and they went on the ent- their entire lives complaining that Emmett Till ruined their lives yeah, yeah 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 by the way because after that look interview a lot of people I guess not those two jurors but a lot of people who had supported them and held them up to this celebrity status turned against them because yeah. they had really believed their story yeah I mean they had to move a lot they had issues mm-hmm. finding yeah, work so, and things like that but boo fucking who murderers right? so they both did die um in one in 1980 the other in 1994 both of cancer so that's the end of their story ding dong the bitches are dead um i do want to mention before we forget uh what we kind of hinted to earlier on in the episode and that is 
in October of 1955, a month before the men would be acquitted on the kidnapping charge. The Jackson Daily News reported the truth about Emmett's father that had been suppressed by the U.S. military. So this was right before when they decided not to charge the men with the kidnapping. The story was then on the front pages of the Mississippi newspapers for weeks, and it renewed the debate about Emmett's actions toward Carolyn Bryant. (laughs) Which Um, is absolutely ludicrous. Like, this is ludicrous. So, like, we were talking about in the beginning, Lewis was incredibly abusive to Mamie and was eventually forced by a judge to either choose jail or enlist in the U.S. Army. So he chose to enlist in the Army. Lewis was executed in 1945 by the U.S. Army during World War II when he was found guilty of sexually assaulting two white women and murdering a third in Italy. This coming to light that Emmett Till's father had allegedly raped two white women and murdered one to a lot of the public then gave credence that Emmett could be Mm -hmm. the same way. It's in his genes. This is who he is. Yeah. And, you know... Lewis was a very bad guy. Like, that's clear. He was not a good guy. However, there is a lot of speculation, at least amongst the family. And again, you know, maybe family is not always the most reliable. No, but they they wonder if that is even the case or if what happened to Lewis was similar to what happened to Emmett. Now, we know that Lewis was abusive. We know he wasn't a good person. I could very easily believe that this is something that he could do because he's a violent person and those things escalate. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think it's interesting to look at, did he? Yeah. Was he murdered unjustly? Truly, this also hadn't come to light until everything with Emmett Till happened. Like, Like we said earlier, Mamie didn't know that this is why or this is how he died, right? I think she assumed that he died in conflict. In battle, yeah, you know? And so I think that it makes sense to present those questions. Like, the army didn't know that his wife was estranged from him. Why wouldn't they reveal those details at the time of his death yeah you know it's it was it's kind of an interesting thing to look at well right and like also i think the fact that the army doesn't really like to go out saying that they've executed people it seems like this was kind of something that was under wraps and uncovered later on like it wasn't ever really supposed to come out it's yeah it's a very interesting thing anyway because like is that like do soldiers I guess I don't really know I know nothing about it but I feel like a lot of that is kept under wraps the like military, like the military, military doesn't execute want us. people like I mean why why can't they if they don't tell anybody I mean like yeah um it's, the government is a scary place I don't know I I don't put it past the government anybody is a scary place. shut up no you I know what it. I mean that's a great line I love that line we should um, have a t-shirt that says the government is a scary place because never a truer word uh truly. put it on a t-shirt <laughs> So, you know, you've already kind of talked about it a little bit, but in 2017, Carolyn Bryant recanted parts of her testimony, saying that Till never grabbed her or uttered any obscenities to her. She also said, quote, nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. Well, too little, too fucking late. Too little, too late, because I just read your entire testimony word for word. Yeah. 
you did not feel that way then and you I highly doubt truly and feel that way now. It's because your life was miserable afterwards because you showed the world that you were absolute pieces of right, garbage because trash. Because the ideology that you <sighs> held on to at that time was being reinforced by everyone around you and then you got older, 2017, right? At this point, society had moved on and looked yep. at you like a fucking monster yep. and now you had to deal with the fact that like history is going to remember you as a monster. Yep. And that's why... And they still fucking will even though you right even d- though she changed your mind she or whatever really tried to do a lot of um, damage control here because not only did she say that and and recanted that part of her testimony she also said that you know Roy was abusive I was scared I yeah. was coerced into giving this testimony. which okay let's look at this he might have been but- I yes and that's what I want to say I don't want to discredit that because I think that there is such importance at acknowledging what abuse can do to somebody but I also cannot forgive her for doing what she did because of that just because there may be circumstances that led her to siding with her husband okay but she's the one who went to her husband she knew exactly Exactly. the kind of person he was and she knew what was going to happen if she went in and said what she said and that's what makes me wonder if it was even one of the boys in the shop that said anything I mean I just don't believe anything that comes out of her mouth but then at the same time if you're as a victim coming forward talking about your own abuses. I also like I'm not taking that into being a reason for anything. I don't like, doubt that this man was abusive. I bet right. both things can be true. This man can yes. be abusive. You can be scared of him. However, you knew because you know your husband and because you know that he's a scary man, you knew what was going to happen when you went home and said this 14 year old black boy whistled, whistled at, at me. me. Like you knew what was going to happen. And when things went off the rails, you doubled, tripled, quadrupled fucking down. When you could have said something at any point. And it's not it's not an excuse. No. Do I think that people behave differently because they've been abused? Of course. Most definitely. Yeah. Is that an excuse for her behavior? Absolutely not. She should have been thrown in jail. And, you know, the the shittiness of the Bryant clan continued on because her daughter went on to say later, who was present for that interview, went yeah. on to say later that she never recanted and that everything that happened uh, was exactly as she said it. Yeah. It was. Um, because I just don't think, you know, which I think she wants to try and justify she her wants parents the world being to monsters. See her. Yeah. Yeah. Like she knows that her parents look like fucking monsters and like I I also want to just go ahead and not not to Hamilton this situation with a history has its eyes on you kind of kind of thing but like everyone right now acting like a fucking mess out there like like anti BLM saying all kind of wild and crazy shit about people just know that like 20 30 40 50 years down the line you all are gonna look like fools too your kids and your grandkids are going to have to be sitting here trying to justify your bullshit. So just yep. keep that in mind. Like, just saying. Snaps for Keegan. Um, Snaps for Keegan. An editorial in the New York Times said regarding Brian's admission that portions of her testimony were false. Quote, this admission is a reminder of how black lives were sacrificed to white lives in places like Mississippi. It also raises anew the question of why no one was brought to justice in the most notorious racially motivated murder of the 20th century, despite an extensive investigation by the FBI. So... Because of this, um, Congress reopened this case in March of 2018 with the U.S. Justice Department, um, but 
nothing came of it. And in December of 2021, the Justice Department announced that it had closed its investigation in the case, even though there were new witnesses, in addition to those who had initially come forward, who said that Milam and Bryant weren't alone when they killed Emmett, that there were four oh. men, remember, who carried him into that barn. Right. So there could still be people alive who <gasps> were responsible for the death of Emmett Till. I forgot Till, about that and part. that case has now been closed for a second time. So. Oh, my God. But let's talk about DNA and shit. Let's figure something out. Okay, let's talk about our beautiful silver lining that is Mimi. So her strength and resilience just carried her through this trial and it didn't end there. Uh, She really kind of had like a mini celebrity status herself after this and rose to some sort of prominence after 1955. After the trial of her son's murders, Mamie continued her education. I didn't add all of this earlier, but her parents got divorced when she was really young. Yeah. And to kind of like deal with that pain, she went like hardcore into her studies. She's very smart. She was one of, yeah. she was like the first black student in her school to get the A honor roll. Like mm-hmm. she was wicked wicked smart yeah she was like the first black woman to have like a a civil position as well yes yeah Yeah, i mean in the city she was in yeah freaking amazing so she was already doing all these wonderful things and she continued her education after the trial and graduated from the chicago teachers college in 1960 which is now chicago state university Mamie's activism was spurred from the fact that Emmett's death had become symbolic of lynchings going on in the South in the 1950s and really had that be her main source of activism for many, many years. She was frequently interviewed for documentary films and began working on her life's story. Uh, The NAACP invited her to go on speaking tours around the country where she would share what happened to Emmett. And this would become one of the most successful fundraising tours in NAACP history. She also established a group called, and this is so up our alley, the Emmett Till Players, which worked with school kids outside of the classroom where they learned and performed famous speeches by civil rights leaders. How cool is that? I love that. Oh my God, I love it so much. When she was a teacher, she worked to help children in poverty and worked in the Chicago public school system for 23 years. Mamie used her role as a mother to relate to others and gain support in the cause of racial justice. She and her husband, Gene, were happily married until he passed away from a stroke in the year 2000. Three years later, on January 6, 2003, Mamie died of heart failure. That same year, her autobiography, Death of Innocence, the story that changed America, was published. Mamie was buried near Emmett, and her monument reads... Her pain united a nation. I mean, that really is like this. This story has this kind of enduring legacy and this the silver lining, for lack of a better term, not only in Mamie's activism and what she was able to accomplish. But as we also said, it really did ignite the nation in terms of the civil rights, of the civil rights movement. Well, it was at the time too. the trial was like the most talked about case of violence against a black person ever. I mean, the yes. amount of reporters that were filling that courtroom, the amount of people that had their eyes on this case, it truly was a catalyst to what yes. would become yeah, it's, the civil rights it's movement. It's because it had all of these elements, right? Like it not only was incredibly brutal, but it also had a victim of a very young age. And it also started with something that was considered to be so benign to, to most people. And, and it then, was and it was the North and the South, two different mm-hmm, worlds two different trying worlds. to understand 
understand each other. These men are acquitted, right? It had all of these elements that just sparked so much outrage in people. And in 1955, the Chicago Defender urged its readers to react to the acquittal by voting in large numbers, which led directly to the protests and marches of the 1960s. As we know, you know, a lot of those initial marches and, and protests that we now see as being these like enormous moments for the civil rights movement were were in action to register to vote right yeah to get people in the south which was a reaction to these to the acquittal yes um so according to author claiborne carson till's death and the widespread coverage of the students integrating little rock central high school in 1957 just two years later were especially profound for younger blacks quote it was out of this festering discontent and an awareness of early isolated protests that the sit-ins of the 1960s were born yeah so it truly probably got a lot more kids involved as well yes i mean even um muhammad ali said that it was this verdict in this case that really kind of like made him so angry that got him kickstarted into the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, And as we mentioned, I just want to close this out, you know, as we mentioned in the mini episode on February 28th, 2022, this year, lawmakers passed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. The anti-lynching legislation will prosecute lynching, quote, when a conspiracy to commit a hate crime results in death or serious bodily injury. And a perpetrator could receive a maximum of 30 years in prison under the act in addition to any other federal crimes that they might commit. So right. and if you have seeing, more questions about that and haven't listened to the mini episode, yes, yes. go on back. We discuss all that more. But we are seeing reverberations to this day. Um, that should go to show you like what a huge, huge case this was at the time and continues to be. Um, even for myself, like like I said, it was really hard for me to do the prep for this episode because the pain is so apparent still, you know, for for Emmett Till and for his family and with this case. So, yeah, I would really be interested to know what his descendants are up to. Like, I don't I know that D- Mamie didn't have any other children or anything like that. So there wouldn't be any direct descendants. But I just wonder, you know, with people that were surrounding him, like his cousins that witnessed um, his uncle, I know that they were all greatly moved by this and it changed their lives, but I would really be interested to know what effect that it had on generations I know, after them. I do in that know family. that some of them, I don't know the answer to that, but I yeah. do know that some of them were interviewed recently this week yeah. uh, with the passing of this anti lynching law and um, basically just saying how glad they were that this law was being passed uh with their you know ancestor's name on the bill yeah but beyond that yeah i don't i don't know i do know that it was very difficult for his relatives who had lived in money i know that some of his cousins who had lived there actually relocated to um chicago one of them actually changed his name yeah uh and did not speak about this until he was interviewed in the 2000s by pbs for that documentary right so yeah i think it was very very difficult everybody's lives Yeah. yeah oh my goodness well hopefully you all are doing okay after listening to this episode it is such an important story I'm sure a lot of you are already familiar with it, but thank you so much for going on this journey with us. Thank you so much for tuning in for another Black History Month with Keegan and I. It is always a very educating and also very joyous month to celebrate. And 
I'm always happy to do it. Yeah, me too. What is this? Our fourth Black History Month together? Yeah. Wild. I know. Wild. Wild. Wow. All right. Well, we are heading into Women's History Month next week. If there are any topics that you would like for us to discuss in the future, please go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you want to check out some of our merch, there's a link in our show notes wherever you're listening. And there's also a link in our Instagram bio. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can chat with the fellow listeners on the group page and rate and review us on the business page. And last but certainly not least, if you haven't done so already please 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 go over to your apple podcast app and leave us a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you think we're great all right so we have for you today with all of being said we encourage you to raise on bye Something about these woods. Something I don't like. They seem to be reaching out, ready to pull someone in. Roanoke, we should never have come here. He had claws for hands, no skin. His head was a skull. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Maybe he sent this evil here, an enemy for me to vanquish. When I defeat it, the others will believe and turn to the pure faith. Executive produced by horror masters John Carpenter and Sandy King Carpenter, Roanoke Falls is one answer to the age-old question of what happened to the mysterious lost Roanoke colony. Perfect for fans of The Witch, it will make you believe in monsters. Roanoke Falls is available wherever you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe so you know when new episodes drop. Or visit realm.fm for more information. The devil in the woods was coming for me, just as he'd come for the others, and now there was no one left to hear me scream.